Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 454. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. I'm Lorraine Sink. And this is Jason Raigohar, a.k.a. JMI. Yeah! I like to call us the Three Amigos. Uh, it's something I just made up. No one's ever used that title for anything before. <laughs> I like that, though. So, uh, we're the Three Amigos. But... That's not what we have to talk about. No, we are going to talk about what's happening this week in Marvel, whether it's games, comics, movies, TV, all that good stuff. Uh, And actually, we're going to even get further out of our norms by talking about a convention. Lorraine, what's going on? Well, did you hear that literally everyone in the world is invited to San Diego Comic-Con this year? (laughs) Yay! You don't have to wait for tickets. You don't have to, like, make a deal with the devil. You can just go to Comic-Con at your house. Uh, I'm going to pause and say, uh, James, remember that text you sent me the other day? Yeah, I do. <laughs> James was like, how do I get tickets for Comic-Con at home? And I was like, bro. Yeah, like, what, what do I have to do? We could all go. <laughs> at least you don't have to wait in line for Hall H. Mm. You don't yes. have to sleep on the street trying to get a hot ticket. You can just log in and enjoy. Yeah. I cannot wait. Lorraine, what, uh, what are some of the Marvel panels that are going to be at Comic-Con at home? So it's going to be July 22nd through the 26th. So coming up really, really soon, uh, yes. Marvel HQ uh, is going to have a panel on Thursday, the 23rd at 4 p.m. Pacific time. Because remember, it is San Diego Comic-Con. Yep. And it's going to be a great destination for young Marvel fans and family folk. It's going to be all of your favorite superheroes with comic read-alongs, epic Lego battle, and a uh, behind-the-scenes look at the animated series Marvel Spider-Man Maximum Venom. <laughs> yes. Which I think is the proper pronunciation. It sounds about right. I think yeah. so. Yeah, it sounds right. Yeah, and then uh, you, you can grab the little ones and grab some paper and a crayon and then do a little uh, draw-along, perhaps. Oh, that's lovely. With Marvel Draws. So it's going to be really great. so and, good. Um, you can check out more about Marvel HQ at youtube.com slash Marvel HQ. If you have a young one, especially, and you haven't checked it out yet, I highly recommend checking out Marvel HQ because there's tons of great free content all the time. Yeah, very cool. Uh, And I know that there's a comic book panel on Friday, July 24th. That's happening at 11 a.m. Pacific. That is Marvel Comics' next big thing. This one's going to be great because it's got uh, Marvel Comics Editor-in-Chief C.B. Cebulski joined by a whole bunch of people. He's going to have Tom Brevoort, who is our executive editor, along with writers Al Ewing and Dan Slott, talking about um, all kinds of stuff that's happening in the pages of Empire. I tried to do my best Al Ewing there. He's like the Empire. Wait, James, do it. James, do it. You can do it. Empire. That, that's there you go. Good. That's, yeah. that's it. That's, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, we, we're going to be talking about uh, the next X-Men crossover, which is Ten of Swords. And it's going to have editor Jordan D. White, writers Teeny Howard and Jerry Duggan talking about that. Then you're going to go over, and there's even more in this panel. You're going to have a Spidey, uh, you're going to have a Spider-Man section with editor Nick Lowe, writer Nick Spencer, legendary comic book artist Mark Bagley, because they're going to be talking about Amazing Spider-Man number 850 and the return of the Green Goblin, which is... So excited. Yeah, right? Oh, man, that's going to be really good. And then um, we're going to be talking about the new Werewolf by Night series, which is pretty neat. It's got creators Taboo and Ben Jackendoff on the panel to talk about that. It is a jam-packed show for that one. Whoa, I'm I'm a big werewolf fan, so I'm very, I'll, I'll look forward to that one. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. 
And of course we have one more, which is the Disney Plus panel, which is gonna be about uh, a whole bunch of things coming to Disney Plus, including Marvel's 616. Uh, that's gonna be July 23rd at 1 p.m. Pacific. It's pretty cool. I'm, I'm excited for fans to learn more about this show. I don't wanna say too much, but it's uh, something that a lot of folks that Lorraine and I are very close with and a lot of folks in Marvel New Media and some really talented uh, storytellers are putting together. So uh, we hope you guys check that out at Comic-Con at home. Now, I have a quick question. I have a quick question. So 616 is our universe. You know, th- yeah. So is, is there a show about our universe on Disney Plus? So... 616 is the, like, as you mentioned, the prime Marvel universe. And we use that as a jumping off point for this show. You'll see you once, you, once you see. I'll tell you, I'll tell you offline, James. Okay, okay. That that sounds just so cool. Oh, hey, James, now that you uh, know, where can we watch all of this awesome Comic-Con goodness? Ah, you can uh, see it all on, you can see it on YouTube slash user slash Comic-Con. So you can watch it all there and have a great time. Also, you can go to uh, their wonderful website, which is uh, comic-con.org. And you can see all of your wonderful Comic-Con content there. It's going to be great, guys. Uh, That is Comic-Con at home. But the next piece of big, exciting stuff happening at Marvel this week is something I've been super excited for it to be revealed in that it is Alien, Predator, and Alien vs. Predator comics coming to Marvel in 2021. I gotta ask each of you, what do you prefer? Alien, the movie, or Predator, the movie? And this will kind of dictate who you are for the rest of your lives. Clearly, for me, Alien, Mm. obviously. Look at the pro tag. I mean, come on. Um, This is hard for me. It's very hard for me because you're talking about the original Alien and you're talking about the original Predator. You're not talking about the predecessors of the sequels. You're talking about the original. And they they stack up pretty equal for me because the original Alien was just one of the scariest things I'd ever seen. But there is something about the ultra 1980s manliness for no god awful reason in Predator where they had to actually show the biceps of a handshake. Yeah. <laughs> With the sweat, with the sweat on our brothers ain't done nothing yet. They haven't even walked outside in the sun. It's just there's sweat inside a building. To me, if I have to, that would be a perfect night for me watching Alien and then Predator right after. So I have to pick both. I I can't pick. If you're talking about sequels, I can pick one. But those two, they're definitely equal for me. Unacceptable. Pick one. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Unacceptable. I get it. If I have to, one ekes out one Predator. Yeah. Here's the thing. Why is the movie Predator so damp? It's oh. everything is damp. Yeah, because they're they're it's they're in the they're moist. They're, they're in some sort of uh, really humid forest. They haven't said. I, I don't. I, I think they said it's what country was. It's a muscle forest. It's a, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a, a leany it's muscle a, yes. forest. <laughs> it's a muscle forest. I mean, oh. everybody's sweating. It also has some. Of, don't get me wrong. Alien has some of the best moments, but Predator has some of the best. Let me have 1980s cheesy lines, you know. I mean, Jesse Ventura, I ain't got time to bleed. I mean, yeah. come on. I mean, these are just... 
I I love Alien a ton, but I am with James on this one. Predator is my my go to. I could watch that movie yeah. all the time. And <laughs> there, like at one point, Bill Duke is shaving his head dry. Yes. Oh man, everything about that movie rules. The end credits where everybody mugs to the camera when you when you like the credits after the whole movie. That movie is perfect. Alien is pretty perfect too. But it's one of the best science fiction, one of the best horror films out there because the scare is so worth it. It keeps you dangling for like 20 minutes before the scare comes. Like most scary movies, they just start off high with a scary movie. Alien makes you wait. They earn it. So that moment, that scare moment, you are, and you are scared from the moment the alien pops out to the end of the film. But I will say, there's so many movies out there with, you know, 80s manliness, but Predator is... All that sweatiness is, it's beautiful. Also, for some reason, Bill, you've, when you were talking about shaving his hair raw, he decides, he, his character choice, to talk in a whisper the whole damn film. <laughs> it was amazing. You're like, brother, he's like, hey man, how you doing? I'm fine. Yes. I'm like, <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> oh, I gotta watch that today. Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> I appreciate that Alien, like, like you said, James, it lets you like reset. You start to have a feeling of like, oh, maybe like everything's gonna be okay. And then it's not okay. And it's like a good slow boil. Whereas Predator is just like, squeeze guitar True. riff the yeah. whole time. Yeah. It's like the Top Gun of <laughs> horror movies. You are, yes, you are. <laughs> you are, that was so good. It's so well played, so well played. And it's, this is not our question of the week, but look, I want to know, listeners, where you stand in this uh, alien predator war. Do you stand with Lorraine and alien? Do you stand with James and I with predator? Um, you have to choose. You have to choose. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> oh, wow. Yes. Uh, choose a side. Yeah. Uh, we released cover art for um, for this with the announcement, and it's by David Finch. It's two pieces, actually. One is the Xenomorph from Alien, which looks awesome. It's cool. The Xenomorph is like posing as like, hey. But the one that really got me is Predator standing on Avengers Tower holding no. Iron Man's head, like severed, <gasps> like helmet head and some viscera oh. coming off of it or wires i couldn't really tell um but it's really cool i'm so jazzed i'm gonna be honest when i read xenomorph i thought of the animorphs do you guys remember that show <laughs> oh, from yeah. like the early 80s i was really i think too young for it but that art is haunting yeah as yeah. are xenomorphs <laughs> yes yeah. they are um what, what's cool is this is going to be in the release, it mentioned that these are going to be building on the decades of storytelling from all the various comics. And you could look at games. You could look at like all the multimedia that's gone into these, including the movies, of course, um, which is very exciting. And uh, there's been great comics over the years. Shout outs to Dark Horse for doing much. So details on upcoming Alien and Predator comic book titles, the collections, reprints, creative teams, all of that will come at a later date. But stay tuned awesome. because... This is going to be great. It's going to be very, very exciting. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I got a, like, the comic store I used to go to as a kid would have, like, brown bag, uh, mystery bag of comics for, like, $2 or whatever. And they would throw in a bunch of stuff. And one of the bags I got had an alien. It might have been an alien versus predator, but it was an alien comic from, the, like, the late 80s. And it was so crazy violent. At one point, like, one of the, the space marines just 
downs a whole like jar of of adrenaline pills or something and is just like shooting as xenomorphs I'm so come. excited. I'm so scared. <laughs> Pretty much. But then my mom saw the comic and she freaked out. She's Ooh. like, "What is this?" And she like went and talked to the comic shop and everything. It was it was great. Um so Ryan, I I think you got one too. Uh I got a little package from our friends at Funko Marvel Battle World Mystery of the Thanos Stones. It's a new collectible game from Funko that just came out recently. It's super duper cute. Um, there are these little Funko figures and they all have info cards with them. And then they also have little baddies that are on cards and you can kind of battle them in board game style, but they're also just like cute little little guys. Yeah, they're, they're adorable. Uh, Lorraine, did you look at the, the character list and all the little figures? Oh, yeah, it's so great. It's There's a bunch of wild. random characters. My favorite is that they pulled a ton of characters from Spider-Ham's universe. Mm-hmm. So you got like Captain America and a bunch of other characters that I don't think I've ever had little figurines or anything before so for me that's the, like one of the most exciting parts and like there's zombie versions of some villains and it's this whole like secret war style thing it's really really cool i'm gonna um unbox mine fully this week and post on my social to to share with folks so if anybody wants to see what i got because they're like mystery boxes and you don't know what you get you can find me at agent m and um i'll post those up it's gonna be cool and uh if anybody out there is playing let us know any tips or or anything because this yeah. is a pretty pretty new game right yeah it's it's brand new it just came out a couple weeks ago um i also did an unboxing which i highlighted on my instagram if people want to check it out as well my favorite one those the little thanos stones as they're called are basically blind boxes so you pop those little suckers open and you get to find out which ones you get from those and i got um i mean i got a bunch of kind of thor themed characters as my main dudes uh, and then I got an Iron Man and a an Infinity Black Panther. That was the one that got me. I I was on your Instagram like just screaming like that one looked so cool. Yeah, it looks really really awesome. And then my other favorite was I got a Dinothor, oh. uh, which is a dinosaur Thor. Yes, but Dinothor. 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 He has a lift, but he's a Thor. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. I'm a Thor as well. <laughs> Oh, man. That's so great. It's wonderful. Uh, yeah, so check those out. And if you guys are out there um, playing this, let us know. I, I'm curious uh, who else is playing. I want to know. Uh, James, speaking of yeah. games, there's something cool that just landed in Fortnite, right? So, okay, you can get a Captain America costume in Fortnite. And now you can basically shoot people and floss dressed as Captain America, which I think is awesome. <laughs> Cap's outfit includes Cap's outfit includes two items: wield the shield at, with your pickaxe and display it proudly on your back. I mean, you know what's going to happen. Folks are going to be out there just Captain America it out. I think it's great. This is cool. So now in Fortnite, you can wear Cap's outfit. So come on, guys. I know you guys want to do this. I'm pretty sure my cousins are already when they when they hear this, they're going to be jumping on this and sending pictures my way that I don't want to see. <laughs> <laughs> can I tell you what Fortnite always? Fortnite always reminds me of, um, I, I went to Sleepy Hollow for Halloween and they had a masquerade sort of uh, haunted house. And there were all these people in 1700s clothing and like masquerade masks. And they were supposed to be very scary and like ghosty. And this little kid went up and was like, 
are you from Fortnite? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, man. Yeah, it's like, that's and what's I, happening. And I think of it every time now. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, I've, I played a little Fortnite recently with a friend of mine just to, like, to play something and talk to a friend, which I think is really fun about these kinds of multiplayer games. But I'm not good at the game, but stuff like this always makes me jump back in now and again. And I know... There's like a, a character from our distinguished competition who's in the game as well. And it's like now you've got these weird crossover possibilities that are happening within Fortnite, which is kind of super nice. neat. Well, I just know that uh, our whole run of Freestyle Love Supreme from off-Broadway to Broadway, Shockwave, our beatboxer who I love, and UTK who has been on this show, they were playing Fortnite the entire time. <laughs> And they, they, I, they, we'd be off stage. I look at the phones. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, playing Shock. Go see Shock. Shock, what are you doing? Playing UTK. I'm like, what are you playing? Fortnite. They were on. It was constant. If we were not rapping, they were playing. And I'm pretty sure once they hear that Cap's costume is there, I'm going to call them and they won't answer because they'll be playing Fortnite. I know them. I know them. Uh, James, Lorraine and I have been super excited about the Marvel's Avengers game that's coming in September. Do you have a game yes. console? I do. I have both PS4 and Xbox One. Oh, I think we've got three people for a squad. Yeah. Okay, I'm down. I was down. literally just going to say that, Ryan. And I was like, what game could we all three play together before that? Because I just set up my PS4. We could. I mean, we could play Fortnite. That's it's true. That's true. That's free. And we could play that. There's um, there's a like I Googled the other uh, not long ago, like all the free games that are available on on the the consoles to play multiplayer or yeah if you if well you don't have an xbox but i've been playing a lot of red dead online and oh, red dead redemption yeah, I, guys, didn't, I didn't i didn't have a switch <laughs> oh i have a switch yeah. i have a switch i have a switch you could play we could play on that there's a bunch of games we could play on the marvel switch. ultimate you alliance 3 come to my yes. animal crossing island. no get out of <laughs> here with that get out give me five stars get out. we gotta move on because we've got more important things to talk about than that dang game like the brand new reprint of god loves man kills the extended cut which is wow. the first issue just came out this wednesday you can go to marvel.com to read an essay by john jennings about god loves man kills and of course the cultural significance in 1982 leading up all the way to today, how it factors into so much. But we wanted to talk about that a little bit more, didn't we? Definitely. And uh, we have uh, this great show, our sister show, which I love so much. Marvel Voices will be back this fall and has done a whole episode about the creation and impact of this comic. So my sister, come on up. But I will let the lady of the hour introduce her. Please, Lorraine, give give this girl the, the prop she needs. This is my... Uh, selfishly my bestie, but also <laughs> uh, also an incredible talent, Angelique Rocher, host of Marvel's Voices, amazing creative lady, talker on all things. Hello, Angelique. Hi. I am so happy to be here on The Twim. I am so, 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 so excited to be here. And I'm really excited because we're talking about God Loves Man Kills, which first X-Men graphic novel, but also one of my favorite favorite, favorite, favorite stories because it's such a beautiful standalone for the X-Men. And so uh, I had a chance to talk to two amazing, amazing folks, Chris Claremont and Marlon James, about the book. Uh, and in fact, Chris Claremont and I talked specifically about 
the beginning of the book, the opening scene, Chris and the entire team wanted to create this one beautiful scene at the beginning that set the tone in such a visceral way. Um, and it was just absolutely amazing in identifying the mutant metaphor so quickly. It's also one of the most sort of disturbing and haunting images from comics I know for myself. <laughs> yeah, it, it should upset you. Like when you read it, it you should look at it and, and like feel something. As you said, Angelique, it's beautiful, but it is jarring and it is um, sadly feels too real for a, a lot of reasons. And um, that's kind of the point of what we're getting at and why you've had this great conversation. So let's hear that first clip with Chris Claremont right now. I wanted a gut punch from the start, which is why it had the opening it did. I wanted to take all the tropes that we throw at readers in a normal story and turn them upside down, twist them out of the way. It's like two kids running for their lives. They don't make it. There's a gunshot. The boy falls. The little girl is like, why are you doing this? And the woman says, because you're evil. Boom. And then Magneto comes along and finds them strung up on the playground. And he, he gives them a more honorable positioning. Yeah. But the point to me was having grown up experiencing <sighs> going to bed Tuesday night in June of 68 and Bobby had just won California. He was going on to Chicago. The world is full of hope and waking up the next morning and he was dead martin was dead the world was coming apart chris and 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 this is what i i love about these conversations chris claremont you know he talks about bobby and martin um and refers to bobby kennedy and martin luther king and what was going on at that time in the country right um for those who don't know you know both bobby kennedy and martin luther king were both assassinated as well as JFK. And this was just a time in the country where so many things were going on. He talks about that in influencing his writing from the 60s and from his life and in, in studying into what was published in 1982, right? And, you know, we also had a conversation with uh, writer Marlon James. I don't know if you guys are familiar with his work, but he's absolutely wonderful, award-winning writer who is a huge X-Men fan and talks about how he walked miles to get X-Men comics when he was a kid growing up in Jamaica and what it meant to him to have the mutant metaphor and the idea of the other um, within, you know, the X-Men. I think because, well, one thing about God Loves Man Kills is that it puts a lot of X-Men and it puts a lot of, of mutant phobia in historical context. So it's, 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 how do I put this? It's a big comic in that sense. It's like, it's the, it's a comic of ideas. I compare it to the first time when you're a kid and you get Dickens, where it's just, this is big and you feel so smart for reading it, but you're getting it. And it's not the first time comics have, you know, been dealing with more material themes than novels, but it's just, you know, to, to, to get into it, it you, you had to sort of read it on so many different kind of levels. And I think this sounds weird. You kind of ended up smarter after you read it. 
I, I agree with you. Which is not the first time an X-Men comic did that to me. Um, certainly X-Men 200. But yeah, and I think, especially if, if, if you go way back with X-Men, hell, you go way back with Marvel, you know, Magneto working with the X-Men in any sort of way is, is, is profound. It's, it's, you know, I mean, I have the comics where he's tried to kill them. <laughs> Numerous times. Yeah. It's the, the, you have to start to think what kind of evil is out there where these two, where this guy um, would come together. And it's one of the reasons why since then, every time Magneto slips back, it's kind of like watching Killmonger. You know, I was just like, yeah, but where the lie, though? <laughs> I'm like, okay, maybe he shouldn't have destroyed that island, but where the lie, though? <laughs> Angelique, thank you so much for stopping by and bringing those uh, wonderful bits of Marvel's voices to share with the This Week in Marvel fam. Thank you so much, Lorraine, Ryan, James, for having me. I'm so excited for folks to get a chance to read Guy Loves, Man Kills for the first time or again. Um, it is such a wonderful story. And also, I cannot wait for everyone to hear this episode and all the other brand new episodes of Marvel's Voices that are coming out this fall. Start rewarding yourself for doing the things you love with the Marvel MasterCard. Learn more at marvelmastercard.com slash twim. Now let me say that one more time. Learn more at marvelmastercard.com slash twim, T-W-I-M. You can earn 3% cash back at comic book shops, restaurants, on digital streaming, and so much more. You can earn 1% cash back on all your other purchases as well. And with cash back paid as a statement credit, there is zero limit on what you can earn. And Marvelites, you're going to love this. You can also get access to over 27,000 digital comics in the Marvel Universe with a free three-month subscription to Marvel Unlimited. Choose your card from one of six designs and start earning today. Terms and conditions apply. Visit marvelmastercard.com slash twim to learn more and apply now. marvelmastercard.com slash T-W-I-M. All right, y'all, it is time for our interview. And this week we have uh, a wonderful friend of the show. He's actually making his second appearance on This Week in Marvel. His name is Greg Young, one of the hosts of the Bowery Boys podcast. Uh, Lorraine, you have some history with him as well. And he's just the sweetest. Yeah, I first met him at a After Hours New York Comic Con show uh, where we talked about Marvel history. And he's just great. Yeah. Uh, and knows so much about cool history and also Marvel Comics. He's just a delight to talk to. And if you need another show to listen to, man, I can't recommend Bowery Boys uh, highly enough. That that show has been a delight for me for the last seven years or so. I've been listening to it for a long time, and um, it's terrific. So let's now go to our interview with Greg Young. Hello, Greg. How you doing? Hello, gang. It is uh, great to be on the show. Thanks for having me on. We're so excited to, to have you. Um, let's just start at the beginning. Um, for you, what was your Marvel origin story? Oh, my Ar Marvel origin story is fabulous, I think. Um, <laughs> okay, so, I, so although I do a show on New York City history, I'm actually from the Ozarks. I'm from Springfield, Missouri. My first comic books, were, I think when I was like seven or eight, were, were Marvel comics. And I remember them so vividly because they were, you, 
could get comic books in a plastic bag. There were like three or four of them or something. I don't know. Oh, I wish they did that still. That would uh, just, that kind of thing brings me back. Anyway, so I can't remember when I first discovered my first comic book store. But before then, I used to buy a lot of comic books from garage sales. In fact, I have like eight or nine boxes of comic books in this apartment. And I would say 50% of them are literally bought from garage sales in Southwest Missouri. <laughs> and so I have some treasures in there. In fact, I just went back home and got some more. And I have, I think, like the first 50 issues of the Star Wars comics from like the late 70s. Nice. Those things are fabulous. Okay, so then... Then once I discovered the comic book store, you know, I became obsessed with uh, comic books. And my favorites were actually, I want to say the X-Men. But to be honest, my favorite comic book in the 80s was actually the New Mutants. Those early New Mutants in some interesting way really um, resonated with me. I don't know. I feel like I was a little bit like projecting my own persona onto like Cannonball. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, right, because he was from, I think he's, is he from Kansas? I can't even remember now. But, like, he was like me, right? And he also was, like, a little different. <laughs> and then, you know, he got to come to New York, and he got to hang out with a super diverse group of cool kids. And so that was sort of um, what I wanted to do with my life. <laughs> and I did. And then I eventually <laughs> did it. <laughs> yeah, so then I moved to uh, New York City in the 19. 19- 90s and this so this whole time I'm so you know sort of collecting comic books and whatever and so and then just to flash forward into like when I started doing the podcast it was actually about five years ago believe it or not I did a whole episode on the history of comic books like a whole episode of our Bowery Boys show and interviewed Peter Sanderson who was a creator at both DC and at Marvel and a researcher and that was really great and it was really sort of during that when I was just like oh my god like Marvel Comics and New York City as sort of like this sort of architecture in the history of New York City, they're so attached to one another in a way that like very few products are, I think. So that's when I really became very interested, especially in Marvel as a kind of historical artifact of what it said about New York City. Yeah, I would love to talk a little bit about that because, you know, even if you think about big personalities that have popped up numerous times in Bowery Boys episodes or just conversations, and you think about like newspaper magnates like William Randolph Hearst and, and Joseph Pulitzer setting the stage for what modern comics became. Yeah, I mean, that is so that's crazy, right? So, comic books, so the even the idea of comic books were invented like. I think it's exactly 125 years ago. I I might be a little off, but it was in the 1890s that the first comic strips came to be in the newspapers. And it was because of those men, those newspaper publishers, and that intense rivalry that they had. It was also because of the advent of color printing in newspapers. So that sort of like boosted comic strips. And so you had comic strips for several decades. Newspapers were booming. Then someone had the brilliant idea of like, well, let's put a bunch of comic strips in a comic book and like a like a magazine and put that on the stands. And then someone else had the bright idea of like, oh, well, actually, instead of like just reprinting comic strips, why don't we actually just make new comic strips? And then someone else had the bright idea of like, well, instead of just strips, why don't we just connect them all into one story, right? So... 
it's in the 1930s that all of that happens. And very interestingly, of course, by the end of the 1930s, you also have timely comics. Or Marvel, actually, is the very first, uh, the sort of first iteration of Marvel comics then. Uh, so there's like a direct connection. I mean, it is kind of, you know, it, it is extraordinary. And again, you know, all of that is like in New York City. And it's because the publishing, it's, be and it's because the publishing industry and the start of the 20th century is in New York City. Um, you've talked about previously, you know, how the Jewish community also became especially in New York City, became an important part of sort of comic book history as well. Yeah, that is kind of like, that is interesting today because you look back and you look at like kind of the, or the all the people who are creating comic books. And from our perspective, it doesn't look very diverse, right? Because it's like, oh, it's just a bunch of white guys and they all happen to be from New York City, right? But when Stan Lee, when Jack Kirby, when they were all getting into the comic book industry, they were all Jewish. They were all working class. They were, you know, they were they lived in the Bronx. They grew up in the Bronx or, you know, um, up in Harlem or, or Brooklyn. And, you know, they came from a tradition where, like, their parents were all working class. They probably couldn't get jobs at sort of like regular magazines that were at the time very waspian and they weren't ha they were there weren't very good they weren't practicing uh fair hiring practices let's just say if you were a, a a jewish writer a jewish comic book writer especially and comic books were looked down upon anyway so i think it is fascinating that um the basis of of marvel comics but really a lot of just the comic book industry in general is from jewish creators from um you know here in new york and i think that a lot of the jewish experience is kind of reflected in a lot of the storylines especially of course after world war ii and the New York of it all is really so interesting to me because, you know, you look at D.C. and they have their fictional cities, which are sort of modeled off of, of real places. But we at Marvel, we were just like, no, this is this is where we live. This is what we see. This is part of the fabric of our lives. And I think it's so interesting to see how that's reflected in the books, uh, even to this day. I think it's actually kind of an underappreciated core feature of Marvel Comics because going back to that idea of like comic strips that like comic books were for kids and then when you did have comic books come out they were still very much in a man uh, a land of make-believe and even DC like they were all in these places that didn't exist and it wasn't even in the real world and then all of a sudden the war came along and uh, you had war comics and all of a sudden the real world was being depicted in the pages of comic books what Marvel then built upon, which is, I mean, just, it, again, it's so underappreciated and, and it seems so obvious, but, you know, they put their characters in the city that they were working, okay? So the city that they saw when they got up in the morning and they went to the office, that was the city that they put into their comic books. And it's not just... I mean, seriously, think about the, like, if you look at comic books or even, like, old cartoons from the 40s and 50s or whatever, it's just flat backgrounds that have no, it doesn't have any relevance. It's just like, oh, they're in a city and they're having these interactions. But in Marvel, they're not in a city. They're in New York City. And they're doing things not just in the city, but in specific neighborhoods that, you know, that reflect that character. And then, of course, the characters themselves reflect aspects of New York to a point 
that they wouldn't exist in any other place. They're basically urban characters that could only exist in, in urban places with, you know, the obvious example being Spider-Man. Spider-Man is the most urban character ever because how can Spider-Man move around in a cornfield? I mean, granted, many, many writers have since taken Spider-Man into a million different ways and how, how he can interact in different environments, but he is born in the city, he's raised in the city, and he fights crime in the city using city architecture as both a backdrop and kind of a foil. Yeah, no, it's so true. I, when you were saying that, I was actually thinking of the, I think it's a Spider-Man Fire Lord story where it's like the best view of New York City because as he swings through and he's fighting Fire Lord, they're at like Grand Central Station and they're, you know, going by the Empire State Building and they're hitting all these New York landmarks as Fire Lord tries to yeah. destroy New York. Didn't Gwen Stacy die on the Brooklyn Bridge, right? Well... Yes. Well, there is this thing because I think they call it the George Washington Bridge, but it's drawn as the Brooklyn Bridge. So who knows? <laughs> uh, you know, I was even thinking, uh, Lorraine, you mentioned, I think you mentioned the Empire State Building. It's like Marvel's offices at one point were out of the Empire State Building. And it's so cool, like even thinking about how Marvel, you know, how closely it's tied to the the places that we think of in the city in those ways as well well the funny part about that is the i mean that sounds like the most like hoity-toity address like how marvel <laughs> comics that like, uh, the empire state building i mean like in, like marvel today would have that address but what's interesting is when they were in there i can't i think it was in the 40s and 50s definitely but New York had too much office space, and actually they used to call it the empty... When it first opened, they called it the empty state building because they couldn't rent out. So, I mean, to me, it just says a little bit about the story of comic books because comic books, of course, they weren't showy, big operations, you know? And so to think of them... I mean, that just makes perfect sense to me that they would be in the Empire State Building, and those views that they would see every day would inform the stories that they would create. And they were also up on 42nd Street, I think in the McGraw-Hill Building. So, I mean, it's just, it's interesting to think about the places where art is created, where things are created, and how that affects, even if, like, in a very subtle way, the things that, you know, are produced and get sent out to the world and get sent out to, like, you know, the middle of the Ozarks to kids like me who are seeing these and, I you know, and, like, seeing, like, New York City landmarks next to, like, you know, the Fantastic Four, you know, the Avengers Mansion up in... Uh, the Upper East Side, you know, and, and like actually knowing, oh, well, the, well, the Avengers Mansion's next to Central Park. Like, I just, I knew that, you know, like I knew the geography was very specific. Marvel has so many sort of interesting twists and turns, like, as you mentioned, starting out as timely comics. From your research, what do you know about this sort of evolution of the timely to Atlas to Marvel comics? They they weren't they weren't necessarily leaders. They were kind of going with the flow back when those comics were created. And so it's just interesting because when when Marvel first came out, the first Marvel comics called Marvel Comics, mm -hmm. nineteen thirty nine, starred the Human Torch and Namor. They were not really kind of heroic, right, in in the way that those two characters would be reinvented later. And so, um, you know, then they changed, they changed their name to Timely, and then Atlas in the 
50s. And when it was Atlas, that's when comics kind of turned a downturn. Even DC had like abandoned its superhero roster. And I mean, it's just so it's just funny to think that like the demand was into Western comic books and like romantic comic books and and sort of like cartoony sorts of things. And the name changes throughout this period because it has to reflect a kind of a different reality on the newsstand, I think. And so when they go back to Marvel, I feel like that was uh, Stanley's. Well, first of all, he was kind of returning to the beginning, returning to those original characters. It was a true reinvention. Um, you know, he was also returning to those characters and making them into proper superheroes because. You know, DC had started to do the same thing. So this is like the Silver Age we're talking about, right? You know, and it's so funny because in a way, we have not... The comic book industry has not really veered off into another direction since then. I mean, comic books can now be a million different things now, and there's now graphic novels, and you can do comics books about any subject, but still the core center of that since 1961, since those decisions, has been superheroes, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, you know, there was a little uh, I, I remember in like the mid 50s, they tried to restart the superhero stuff. They brought back Cap mm, and Submariner yeah. and Human Torch. Oh, yeah. and it failed within oh, a couple right. months, although Namor <laughs> lasted longer than the rest. I will remind everyone that he is the greatest forever and ever. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's also around that time, I think Seduction of the Innocent hits and that probably had such a, a an effect on. I mean, it definitely had an effect on what the comics were and what the stories they were telling, but I would assume it would have affected the New York City comics community as well. Yeah, so back then, we, we were living in a hyper kind of paranoid world of the late f- post-war, you know, 40s and 50s. And we were also dealing with the, with the rising growth of like psychoanalysis and psychiatry. And so all of those kind of played into this bizarre thing where comic books were just tr- demonized in, uh, in this kind of shocking way, even. And this Seduction of the Innocence, this book that came out, which was essentially like really broke down like how evil comic books were and how they were just this like this like really bad influence on not just kids but just American culture was just going to corrupt and it's going to corrode American culture and you even had like special clinics like here in New York City where if a kid was like too hardcore into comic books like they would they would be sent uh, to kind of like detox from comic books if you if you will three of um, us would have gone to detox it would have been terrible <laughs> And actually, I think I think that is probably why that kind of like soft reboot of Marvel that you mentioned probably didn't take off, right? Because it was like right in the heart of the 50s. And it's interesting because the center of the kind of government's ire, as, so when when they kind of went after the comic book in- industry, the center or the, the people who were really attacked were actually... Um, those at EC Comics, right? They were the they were the ones that testified. And EC Comics were these horror comic books. And again, this reflects the fifties. That suit they were not like superheroes were not really big, but with horror comic books and Western comic books to a certain degree, the creators were being really, really provocative. I mean, they were printing things and depicting scenarios that were rather disgusting and were actually pretty gross you know i mean it's but it is funny how there was this moment in the 50s where actually the comic industry could have just 
all gone away. And we sort of got over that moment, thankfully, for a lot of different reasons. And kind of rising from the ashes, one of the saviors was Stan Lee in, in the 1961. And so, I mean, it, it is really incredible that there was this weird moment where it could have all gone up in smoke. Gosh, you're such a fount of knowledge. I really, I want to talk about Bowery Boys because you guys have been doing it for so long. 13 years, that's right, 13 years? Yes, we're now at 331 episodes, which is crazy. But I mean, we have, our... Our, our release schedule has been so, like, for a certain, po- a certain point in our history, we actually did once a month, which is crazy. Um, and then, of course, during our kind of stay-at-home moment, we were recording two episodes a week. So, you know, it just depended on time and availability. But it's really been incredible. And I have to say, you know, we're in this very strange moment in our history right now. Um, one odd side effect is... Learning and knowing history, in particular American history, has never been more important. I mean, think of everything that we're going through. There's always like, oh, the COVID-19. This is like the pandemic of the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. Oh, and then there's like all of the, the current things with our current protests and Black Lives Matter. I mean, all of this, like what gives it its its sort of weight and intensity is all the historical things that have led before this before, you know? And so it's, it's, it's an exciting time to be an American historian and to try to find stories on the one hand that can really relate to where we're at, but also to provide a little escapism, which we have to do too. I was just listening to your most recent episode because I wanted to, you know, be up on my on my history. But it's crazy to me, you know, you're talking a lot about 1917 and the silent parade and the creation of the NAACP and Red Summer and all of these things, as well as the Spanish flu. And it's a hundred years difference, almost exactly. And it's almost exactly all of the same issues that we were dealing with then. I mean, I think it's extremely interesting to see how history repeats itself over and over and over again. Yeah, they had all the same things, plus a world war. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I mean, oh, plus women were fighting Knock for the right something. to vote, <laughs> you know? See, in a way, to me, the parallels make me feel better, to be honest. I mean, it can be depressing because it's like, oh, we have to do this again. Like, why don't, you know, like, you know, why are we still fighting for these civil rights causes? Like, why are, you know, like, why are women still unre- underrepresented? Why are we not listening um, when someone says we have a pandemic and all of a sudden we don't know what to do? Like, there's all these things you're like, history is repeating itself. But on the other hand, all of these awful things happened 100 years ago. And then you know what happened? The Jazz Age. Then they had like this unbelievable period of both prosperity and creative energy, which, you know, is really, we hope that we have now (laughs) going forward, you know? It's all going to be TikToks and Lorraine's going to be at the forefront of it all. Oh, please. I am leading the TikTok (laughs) revolution. Oh, boy. Uh, so we, we've been talking a little bit around it and about it, but um, please explain for any of our listeners who have not specifically heard Bowery Boys, what is the show about and, and some of maybe some of your favorite episodes? Sure. So the, the, the official title is the Bowery Boys New York City History Podcast. And I mean, at this point, I like to describe it not as a New York City history podcast, but an American history podcast that is set in New York City. Because at this point, we've done so many shows, and most of them just have like national and international relevance in terms of the subjects. Um, 
New York has been, you know, a city or a settlement for almost 400 years. Although, of course, there was Lenape living here on this island before that. So it's really more than 400 years of history. And yeah, so every episode, we kind of like go around and back and forth. We don't do anything specifically chronological because there's so many different stories. And we found that if we stay in one era too long, people want to hear about something else. So we'll go from like... New Amsterdam, which is, you know, like the Dutch colony that was here before it became New York, to say like the history of Billie Holiday, like Billie Holiday's story, to like a murder mystery that happened in, you know, the late 19th century. Like one of my most recent shows, which I think is kind of fun, is called Is Jack the Ripper Come to Town? And that is like there was a, during the Jack the Ripper murders in New York, or I'm sorry, in London, in Whitechapel. New Yorkers were panicked that he had come over actually literally on a ship and was murdering in the streets of New York, which is nuts. So we use New York as a template, but try to find a story that you can listen to and appreciate if you don't live here. You do cover such a wide variety of topics, you know, but how do you pick what's next? And then how do you even start to research these things? Because you do very deep dives. Well, it has been more challenging in our current <laughs> moment because I can because my number one place for sources is obviously the library, and I'm still old fashioned yeah. and like to act. And, be, and actually, there's still books that aren't scanned. So I mean, that is a sort of deficit. But we're making we're making do. But um, yeah, so the we choose a subject kind of based on it goes back and forth. Is there something happening in the world that we might want to hear a story about something related to that? So, for instance, I recently did a show called The Staten Island Quarantine War. So that was like a piece of history. It was in Staten Island. There was an old quarantine from the 19th century that burnt down because people were tired of living next to a, a quarantine hospital. So that obviously related in many ways to history. But we can also kind of gauge the temperature of people and figure out, well, you know what? We actually just want to do a fun escapist show. And like, for instance, to this show on elevated railroads that we're going to do. You know, people are talking about transportation. They're talking about not using the subway. They're talking about missing the subway. So doing a show on transportation, you know, hopefully people will listen to that. And they can either use it as a form of escapism to imagine themselves of what it was like to live in the nineteenth, late 19th century and, you know, take an elevated train or, you know, just use it as a way to get misty-eyed if they actually do miss the subway. And it's also just our whim, quite honestly. Like, when you research a subject, you go down the rabbit hole and you find five other subjects. To give you one example of this, I mean, and talk about, like, the most frivolous show we've ever done, but it's pretty funny. There was, in the 1920s, I think it was 1921, speaking of 100 years ago, this wacky incident called the Straw Hat Riots, where there was like a fashion trend where like once the cool weather came, you switched your straw hat. And these were men's fashion, okay? Straw hat to like your fedora or whatever, or your bowler hat or whatever. But like gangs of men, like sort of rowdies, got very, very aggressive if you didn't take your straw hat off. It actually built to a, like riots, like what they call riots, straw hat riots, where it was like literally like roving gangs of hundreds of people in the street, like smashing straw hats. And it lasted for like two or three days. 
And everyone hated it except for the people who sold hats. But yeah, I mean, that is something I did not know anything about until like a few months ago when I was researching something else. I was like, what the heck is this? (laughs) So yeah, our subjects are sort of all over the place. Hopefully there's going to be something that if you're a casual podcast fan, I think you you would be interested in. You know what? I realize you said we a bunch of times, but we haven't had you actually say, who is your partner in pod? <laughs> oh, right. Um, so uh, my podcast p- partner, his name is Tom Myers. And so we've started the show 13 years ago. So he's on most of those shows. Again, he um, he just recently adopted a baby. So he has actually been off some of the shows, but he's coming back. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's great. We were, we were old friends. We started the show because... Um, we both lived in the Lower East Side, and I was just going to go over, and we were going to like play music and drink a bunch of wine, but I had a laptop with me that I just bought, and it had GarageBand. I was like, Tom, do you know that there's this thing where you can act? It's like a radio thing, but like <laughs> you record it, and it's just, a, it's just a regular show, and they call it a podcast. But yeah, it's been marvelous. Uh, let's bring it back to, to Marvel and New York City a little bit. So if you think of Marvel, you think of New York City, is there a specific neighborhood that you sort of tie each together with? There are a few. I will tell you my two favorites. I'm subscribed to a bunch of comics, and one of them is Doctor Strange. What is really fascinating about that character and how the history of the character is embedded in everything that he does is that, you know, Sanctum Sanctorum is not only in Greenwich Village, it's on Bleecker Street. And at the time that it was created, would have been on this corner that had two or three really essential, iconic coffee shops where all of these great writers and artists hung out. So, I mean, like, literally Doctor Strange was next door to all of these places. And then if you just look at the Doctor Strange just stepping back, he embodies all of this, like, psychedelica, both in how the comic is presented, but even in his storylines and even in his powers. Um, and it draws in a lot of, like, like metaphysical, like mysticism that was really popular in the 60s. So to me, like Doctor Strange is an embodiment of New York City in the 1960s in a peculiar way because he's not really a hippie. Um, He does wear a flamboyant, fabulous cape. (laughs) But um, so then you have another character with a profound biography is The Thing, And the thing grew up on the Lower East Side as part of the Yancey Street Gang. And Yancey's not a real street, but it's clearly designed to kind of recall Delancey. That biography and his story is really intriguing because it's the Lower East Side told by people who were kids who were on the Lower East Side. So, I mean, if you compare that to, say, Reed Richards, you know, those kids were not living the life of of Reed Richards. Those kids were living the life of the thing. So that character is uniquely, you know, Jack Kirby, like, drew from things that he knew to create that character. And that's actually, if you think about it, an extraordinary thing for a superhero that before that, like, 
people were creating in the 30s and 40s these like super men with superpowers from that we that weren't like relate like relatable that you you read them because you were looking up to these people or you wanted to escape but then all of a sudden you had characters like the thing and spider-man out in queens that were just like everyday people the creators who who made these and invented these characters knew these people like new people like peter parker knew a ben Grimm. You know, so to me, like that grit is still in those characters and those characters can go all around the world and they can do whatnot and whatever and they can fight Galactus and blah, blah, blah. They are still like to me, like that New Yorkness is embedded in their personalities. Are there any fictionalized Marvel locations or buildings perhaps in the Marvel Universe that you particularly like? I love whenever any... Marvel Comics character interacts with the Roosevelt Island tram. Okay, the tram, <laughs> it's so dramatic. The thing is, is most New Yorkers like don't use the tram. They don't go to Roosevelt Island. Uh, only residents of Roosevelt Island or those who work out there use the tram. And yet the tram, I think, makes a kind of outsized appearance in comic books because it's such a dramatic backdrop. Because you have the city behind it, you have a bridge. That's always exciting to see because, again, it, it seems to have some sort of outsized importance. <laughs> now, am I, uh, I, haven't, I'm, I, I haven't been paying attention. Is Staten Island now Monster Island? I was going to bring that up. <laughs> yes. Deadpool is king and uh, Staten Island belongs to the monsters, which I think is a wonderful play upon how many New Yorkers think of Staten Island. But there's there's redeeming <laughs> qualities of Staten Island. So again, I feel like that is being informed by our perceptions, but also a little bit by history. I mean, Staten Island has always felt, um, Staten Islanders have always felt like they were ignored, underserved by New York City and New York State. Like that quarantine um, hospital, I mean, that is in a way like one of the roots to this because the city just plopped this major quarantine hospital. So like when ships came in to the harbor, they had to like drop off all of their like yellow fever patients and cholera patients there. And there was, you know, virtually no security and people could just come in and out. And so all of the residents of constantly of Staten Island were always getting sick. So finally they got fed up and they burnt the whole place down. And they moved to the quarantine hospital. Then you go to the 40s and the 50s, and the city puts the Fresh Kills landfill out there, which was the biggest landfill in the world. And they got rid of that because Staten Islanders voted to secede from New York City. Yeah. And, you know, and that, that sentiment is very real. So, I mean, there is a, there is a fun symbolism about putting Deadpool... <laughs> And making it a monster <laughs> island, which I think is beautiful. That is beautiful. Uh, any last Marvel memories or thoughts you want to share with the... Uh... Oh, I do. I do. I wanted to say that there's one, there's one Marvel comic, one specific issue that holds an extremely special place in my heart. When I worked in the music industry, I was there for many, many years. Um, but on my desk, from the moment I got my job, I had... Now you, I don't know if you know this, but do you know that Marvel in the, in the mid '90s got into like making music themed comic books? Oh, you mean like so, the Billy Ray Cyrus wonderful well, comic? Th well, the Billy Ray Cyrus 
comic book holds a special place in my heart. And it sat on my desk. I had it in a frame for like most of those 20 years. And of <laughs> course it aged in a very different, very sp- intriguing way. Cause when I framed it, Billy Ray Cyrus was like, it was achy breaky heart was on the radio. And then of course, you know, by the time I left my job, um, you know, Miley Cyrus was like swinging around on a, on a giant <laughs> ball. So, you know, <laughs> it changed with me and I took it with me. Um, I was just reading about those Marvel m- music comic books actually before the call here. And I mean, you can just imagine like what those would be like today. Maybe I see a collaboration between Marvel and the whole K-pop thing happening here. Just an idea. <gasps> well, actually, Greg, we have a K-pop superhero. Uh, That's right. L- Luna Snow. She's a K-pop star and she's got amazing, uh, amazing powers as well. She's awesome. Oh my god! I, I'll need to tell my my niece, who is a Marvel comics. If she she probably knows actually, Marvel comics fan and a K-pop fan. So if she's yeah. not aware, I will get on the horn with her today. <laughs> she will love it. Greg, thanks for being on. We love Bowery Boys. Oh, it's yeah. a pleasure, and I love your show. Thanks for thanks for giving me you know companionship while I walk around with my headphones through the <laughs> through this very strange city at this time. Yeah. Us too. Thank you so much for teaching us. No, my pleasure. Um, have a great New York week. Big thanks again to Greg Young for coming on the show for being awesome. Uh, all right, and next week we have another awesome guest, uh, one whose name I threw out on a lark not long ago just being like it would be fun to talk to al jean one of the producers of the simpsons like not thinking that would happen and then boom we got al jean producer of the <laughs> simpsons cool i know i really when we were like yeah that would be a great person to have on never thought it would happen <laughs> no uh so that's gonna be really fun he's on the show next week and uh i think with that in mind our question of the week is what is your favorite Simpsons couch gag scene? So, you know, you have the opening credits and there's a couple of bits that change from week to week, you know, with the what is written on the chalkboard that uh, for Bart. Uh, but most famously is the couch gag where they all run into the house and something changes week to week. There's hundreds, hundreds. if not. Yeah, there's hundreds of them. Uh, do any come to mind to either of you? How about the Avengers one? Oh, yeah. yeah. There was there was one where they were all bouncing balls, and they just like bounced into they they all came bouncing in and they bounced into place and it was just really really fun. Or the one where they all ran to the couch, and the couch just collapsed. The wall collapsed. The house collapsed. It was <laughs> they hit the couch so hard the wall collapsed. The whole house collapsed. I was like ah, I like that. That's funny. Yeah, uh, I'm watching from the beginning with. Uh, like I watch an episode every morning on Disney plus um, nice. now that they fixed the ratio, the aspect ratio and everything. And sometimes I watch with the baby. And so I'm watching like season, t- even parts of season one, it was like starting a fire. And then season two is so good. Uh, and the couch gags are like real, like basic at the beginning. And then I think, you know, mm-hmm. you fast forward three decades and they do some really weird esoteric stuff. There's one mm-hmm. that I can't rem- I, It was probably like, five or six years ago where it was as if they were in the future and they were like these just shapes and it <laughs> turned into some really weird black and white things where it's just got real, real nuts. And I, I gift the crap out of it when, when it happened, I was like so into it. Um, I like it when they get really, really weird for the couch gags. 
I think that that show, they basically were like, look, we've been on so long, we can do anything. 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 Truly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so those are some of our favorites, but we want to hear from you, dear listeners. What are your favorite Simpsons opening credits, couch gags? Let us know with hashtag This Week in Marvel on Twitter. You can also um, send them to us via email at twimpodcast at marvel.com. Or on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash this week in marvel oh yeah speaking of that facebook page i shared it around with our little group uh james i don't think you were on that that message but uh we got a message to our facebook group that um zane from one direction said hello so uh that was good (laughs) wait was it really the zane okay let's say Yes, Lorraine. Uh, James, did... <laughs> it's really Zane. Did, uh, has One Direction uh-oh, ever uh-oh. come to one of your Broadway shows? No. Th- you know what? I can't say that. I cannot say that. I'm pretty sure that a, co- that a couple of them went to Hamilton before I got there. And I think one or two went to um, Aladdin after I left. So obviously they were just waiting for me not to be in the building to yeah. show up. Like ships <laughs> crossing in the night. They were like, oh, no, no, we can't be there in the same spotlight as James Igar. We have to go by ourselves. That's, That's what I tell myself in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> James, you just mentioned Hamilton, and we all forgot to talk about the fact that Hamilton debuted just now, uh, just the last couple of days, on Disney Plus. July third on that, that Friday, yes, on Disney Plus. It's um, it's a weird feeling um, because I was there. Early on, early, early, there's uh, some uh, Lincoln Center just posted something of Lynn and, you know, us doing my the original version of my shot when it was literally just myself and Lynn and then uh, going to see opening night and seeing the original cast leaving and then being in the cast for the past three years. I think what's fun about it is the fact that, you know, the people get to see where it started where the phenomenon began and it's great now it is surreal to watch it because my brain goes to all the notes we're given you know our choreographer comes in and goes hey don't do this don't do that don't do this and i always laugh because i'm like you let the original cast do that i'm looking at i'm doing it i'm looking i'm looking at every i am looking at everything you tell us not to do you know? so it's 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 really funny and now you know i'll call the guys i'm like hey you know you're supposed to do that right and they'll literally tell me i won't say which actor they'll be like yeah yeah um i I didn't listen to that because it was too hard i just decided to do this and i was like and they put that on camera (laughs) (laughs) but it it was great and i was so happy that everybody watched it i didn't watch it at the same time as everybody else uh only because you know um i'm a part of it so i know (laughs) what's happening so i i took a moment you know the next day to like watch some bits of it but i was like man this was my life for Three, three some odd years of like, I've seen it. I've I've seen it. And I've seen it with these dudes. And I've done it with some of them. (laughs) You know what? Something I thought was really cool about getting to watch it. Because I got to see it twice. I got to see it with you. And I got to see it with the original cast as well. And, you know, when you see it in a theater, even if you have a great seat, you don't get some of those really close moments. Yes. Now that's true. Um, and at first, it's always kind of weird when they film theater and you're like, oh, I'm like up close and I don't expect that. But then there were so many moments, like little tiny things that I never caught. And I'm like, I don't know that I would catch these unless I got to be uh, sitting in one seat in the theater or if I were in the actual cast and I knew all those little things. Like there's moments where, you know, Hamilton's like making eyes at the waitress and like yeah. stuff like that where I just totally missed it on stage, but there are all of these like little nuanced things that happen, all these tiny moments that 
you get to actually really see an experience and it's not like the drinking from the fire hose that is seeing a show where you're watch, yeah. trying to watch everybody at once because they focus your uh, line of sight, you know, it's really cool. Uh, all right, from there, let's go over to our community section to see uh, some tweets we got from our listeners. First is from the tech lord at Lex Pendragon saying to Nick Lowe, who was recently on the show, that Nick let slip that there is a spreadsheet of all the Spider-Verse Spider-Mans with universe numbering and everything else. He says, release the list. I want to see it. Uh, so um, Lex is talking about recently Nick was on Marvel's pull list talking about this. Yeah, that that would be a great list. And I think I think there's just secrets on there that might yeah. prohibit us from sharing the list. We'd have to redact yeah. some pieces from there, I imagine. So Karis Pollard at A Karis Pollard. Hashtag This Week in Marvel goes to the ever fabulous hashtag Hawkeye Freefall. This final issue was really full on. A lot of action, violence, but ultimately the solution used brains almost as much as trick arrows and band-aids. It was a meaty, satisfying ending, if not really happy. Also, the art really, really strengthened the story. It's bold, it's scratchy, that heightens the violence and energy of those scenes, but that doesn't sacrifice effective detail faces and pretty colors too. At Otto Schmidt 72. Uh, yeah, shout out to Matthew Rosenberg and Otto Schmidt for spearheading really terrific limited series with Hawkeye Freefall. I love that book. So dang good. And from Aaron Marr at Aaron Marr at EDU. Uh, I enjoyed this episode very much and I am not even a Star Trek fan because last last week we did some talking about Star Trek. <laughs> Thanks for a great podcast. We had such a blast getting to talk with uh, Michael and... Alex about Star Trek. Ryan was like, Trek? <laughs> Trek? I barely knew her, right? Oh, uh -uh. boy. No? Does that don't work? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly, no, that, that is exactly the way that phrase is intended to be used, Ryan. That's so wrong. <laughs> uh, and on that note, this episode of This Week in Marvel was produced by Percy Overland, Zachary Goldberg, Lorraine Sig, and Ryan Penagos. Our audio development manager is Brad Barton. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And special thanks to Alien and to Predator, a love story for the ages. Oh, nothing like a good love story. I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. And I'm James. And this is Marvel. Your, Your universe. universe. What sound does Predator make? It's like... Yeah, this is those clicks. Yeah. When it gets really fast, it's like, it's not a purr, but it's like, it's really cool. Yeah. What's the alien sound, though? I can't remember. It's like, It's like, hey, girl, I'm an alien. Why does it sound? It sounds like that big girl. It sounds like that big girl on Bob's Burgers. Hey, girl. Oh, God. I got two mouths. Bob, I met I met a guy. It's a, it's a, he's a predator. He's a predator. He's awesome. He's got like claws on his hands. He's gonna keep he's taking me out tonight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think that's the moment now where we stop tape.